during the Black Death. The Black Death wiped out a third of Europe, but it was followed and helped pave the way for the Renaissance. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today, I am calling in from Jerusalem, and I'm joined in Washington by Ed Luce, the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist. Ed is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, which will be released on May 4th. ER nerds, I hope you've been enjoying the traveling ER show. We'll be back to the regular schedule next week with our regular team, and we have got a lot to catch up on. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Maybe you'll even get a coveted mug out of it. Recently, from Jerusalem and our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, Ed, we were talking about your book. We were talking about the thesis that Western liberalism is in retreat, and we talked briefly about the idea that that uh, retreat was triggered not for local political reasons, but because of some of the bigger changes that are associated with the moment in which we live, the moment in which the world is moving towards being connected for the first time, how that is accelerating some change, exacerbating some differences, and also changing a lot of roles in the world. That frames your book. It also happens frames my book. I uh, I read your book um, last night, and it has many virtues, the first of which is brevity. Uh, obviously, it was longer than the TED talk you gave about the great questions of tomorrow, but it's still something you can read in an hour or two, which is great. Uh, brevity is the soul of wit. Uh, secondly, it's very, very thought-provoking. So I want to, I want to ask you a few questions about it. And the first is the the actual question you open it with. You quote Einstein as saying that you know if he had an hour to figure out a great question to a great answer to how to solve the world, he would spend the first fifty five minutes figuring out what the right question was. So clearly it's better to have an unanswered question than an unquestioned answer what is what is the right question for these great challenges and themes we are facing in, in this world what is david rothkoff's question well first of all i i really resent the fact that you came up with that unanswered question unquestioned answered line which <laughs> would have been really good in my book and you could have suggested it earlier <laughs> so, secondly i appreciate you're flagging the, the most important virtue of the book, which is its brevity. No, I'm going to get on to other virtues and challenge you on one or two points. Yeah, these, these TED Talks are designed to be extension of TED Talks, but also be consumable in a few hours. They're also small, and you can carry them around without injuring yourself, unlike these ungainly art books, which you know you can barely lift them up, or any of my, my recent books. But to get to your question, you know, I I think what happens is that in big moments of transformation in the world, and I cite other moments like this where technology and social change outstrip the ability of institutions and belief systems to keep up with them, that it really shakes civilization to the core in in the really big such moments. It actually forces us to reconsider the social contract. And in fact, the last time that there was a 
think a, a change quite as momentous as this was the Reformation. And, and that actually triggered the discussion that we have today, you know, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and so forth over the course of a couple hundred years about the social contract and what is the nature of the social contract. But it also raised a lot of fundamental questions. What is the nature of governance? What are our individual rights as people? What is the purpose of society? What is the nature of an economy and so forth? And I see a correlation. The bigger the changes, the more fundamental questions we've got to go back and ask. Mm -hmm. And I see us at a moment where within a decade, effectively, for the first time in the history of the planet, every human being will be connected in a man-made system. And this will change the nature of identity because identity has primarily been a geographically linked thing, and that's going to be less true. It's going to change the nature of governance, because as you change identity, you change community. As you change community, you change the groups within which you operate and who share views. And In talking about your book in the last episode, we talked about people in cities currently share more views with other people in other cities and other countries than they do with people in their hinterland. So we get new divisions. New York and London are closer to each other by far than Des Moines, Iowa, and someplace in you know Wales. And then on top of that, we've got technological changes driving economic changes and forcing us to ask questions like, what is a job? What is money? I mean, our grandchildren will, will probably never hold currency in their hands. What is war? We have cyber war where countries fight each other, but nobody's quite sure of how and when, and it goes on all the time without a declaration of war. Mm-hmm. And it changes the definition of peace because we're constantly in conflict. So I think we're at one of those big watershed moments. You might argue, as you mentioned in the last podcast, that the Industrial Revolution was also similar. But we're at one of those moments where it really behooves us to go back to core questions like, what is the social contract? Why have we entered into it? What are our rights in this new world? Do you have a right to the Internet? Because if you don't have access to the Internet, you can't actually be an effective or competitive citizen in a society, and so forth. And I, I think that's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to say, let's get back to the core questions that we need to ask as we look forward to this massive set of changes, or we're going to be blindsided, or we're going to play into the hands of the reactionaries like Trump and others who are simply going to try to resist these big changes and not actually grapple with the big questions we need to ask. So I think your book raises the right questions, which, of course, is 95% of it. Let me just start, though, with a general point you 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 quote a wonderful line that you're when you were younger and doing a a holiday job at bell labs where your father worked you were terrified of nuclear armageddon this is in the early 1970s and um your father um not so not so early you know and keep going and well your father um your father sort of indulgently smiled and he said look during the Black Death, the Black Death wiped out a third of Europe, but it was followed and helped pave the way for the Renaissance. Now, you talk about our period today being the day before the Renaissance. Now, I guess the Black that makes Trump the Black Death, of course, and Farage. But talk to me about the optimism 
that underlines your book? Because a lot of people are feeling pessimistic nowadays. What is the source of your optimism? Well, let me take a step back from that and say that, you know, I do think the idea of the day before the Renaissance is a very powerful idea, and it's very accurate. We've spent the past 20 years looking at the problems of yesterday, looking at small-scale issues, um, looking at distractions. Terrorism is a distraction. It's a problem. It's a serious problem. It's not an existential problem. And it's much less of consequence than the coming technological changes are going to be in terms of rewiring society or redefining what conflict is or redefining what threats are, but also redefining what opportunities are. And, you know, I think the source of my optimism is a close read of history. I think one can't be a rigorous student of history and not also be long-term optimistic. Because as Steven Pinker and others have written in books like The Angels of Our Better Nature, we are living longer today. Fewer people are dying in conflicts today. There are fewer wars today. People are healthier today. They're better educated today. They have greater economic opportunities today. The bottom is rising, even if in many places the top is rising away from them too fast, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you look at history, you see the arc of history bending towards progress. And, and I think that's, that's true, and it's inarguably true. The problem is that when you have periods of disruption where these big social changes take place and we move in the Reformation from a world of principalities dominated by Catholic Church or the Holy Roman Empire to a world of nation states, we move to a world where there's a rising middle class, where corporations are first being created, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, or during the Industrial Revolution, where we start seeing the consequences of the marrying of capital and the means of production and technology of the day, uh, as Marx described it, but we also are seeing unionization and changing ways that people in society can organize themselves and so forth, that the big periods of change produce backlash and disruption and conflict. And, you know, in the case of the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, the greatest war the world had ever known until that point. And I think in the case of uh, the Industrial Revolution, initially revolutions across Europe in the 19th century, and ultimately World War I and World War II, the greatest and bloodiest conflicts that the world has ever known. And I think as we look at this period, we have to ask ourselves, what are the short-term disruptions likely to be before we get our arms around it? What are the risks associated with the spread of cyber warfare? What are the risks associated with growing inequality? What are the risks associated with not understanding how, what a job is or how wealth is created? What are the risks associated with the backlash against globalization and the fact that people in cities have more affinity to one another than, uh, than their neighbors in the country do, et cetera, et cetera? And could those lead to some very disturbing things? I think they could, and I think that's why we need to be asking the questions now. Well, so you mentioned uh, Hobbes, Locke, Kant, Immanuel Kant, um, and others as being the great philosophers who, who asked the the really important big questions of their time as uh, the Renaissance happened, the Industrial Revolution began to get underway. Who are today's philosophers? I mean, you call in your in your book... We, for philosophers, we, we need to understand the importance of philosophers. But of course, we are 
we are living in in an age where we've got declining sort of public bandwidth for anybody very serious. We've got a, a backlash against expertise, and philosophers are the sort of uber experts, aren't they? They ask the really fundamental questions about the nature of society that that the transformation you write about begs us to ask. So my question is, in addition to you and me, of course, are obvious. Who are the other philosophers who are going to who are going to help us answer these hugely important questions? Well. You know, I do think that is an important question, and I do think one of the conclusions that I drew in, in starting to ask these questions is that one of the most important questions is where are the philosophers? Because I think we're sort of making up laws and making up rules without asking why we're having the laws and why we have the rules. Uh, and I go back to this question of, you know, what are our fundamental rights? It took us 350 years to get from the invention of the printing press to the conclusion that the right to a free press was fundamental. And through that, we went through, you know, the Glorious Revolution and John Locke and, and a lot of debate to come to that conclusion. Well, right now, there's a debate going on in different countries. How do you treat the Internet? Does the government have the right to regulate it? And we are starting to see a groundswell among some countries and say, no, you can't. You, you can't be a citizen. You can't get a job. You can't be competitive. You can't educate without the access to the internet so people have a right to the internet. There's, I think, nine or ten countries in the world right now that grant the right to the internet in their constitutions. I think that's going to grow. But it raises other fundamental questions. If you have a right to the internet, do you have a right to electricity? Because you can't, you can't actually have a right to the internet and, and take advantage of the internet unless you have access to electricity. Now that would have seemed absurd to the common person in a political discussion 30 years ago. You know, many parts of the world, uh, you know, lack, lack electricity still today. Over a billion and a half people do. But in the new world we're entering, if you don't have access to electricity, you're out of the money.